Yeah, and I guess one mistake that I've made throughout my career was seeing that, capturing that opportunity, really riding it, and while I'm riding it, thinking that it's going to last forever and not looking for the next thing, that I'll always have a little lull for a year or two after I have a big hit. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. All right, welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dan Steele. He's a highly accomplished entrepreneur, author, and business strategist with over 25 years of experience in tech. He co-founded the largest influencer marketing company called Influential and authored the book on ChatGPT. And so since we're passionate about AI on this podcast, I'm sure that's going to give us some fun material to share with the audience. He's passionate about mentoring and coaching, budding entrepreneurs, and his innovative approach to business has earned him a reputation as a trailblazer in the industry. So Dan, the first question I have for you is, why should people think about starting a business in Las Vegas? What's high leverage about Las Vegas? Because I've noticed you've been there for a while. I actually just moved to Bash. Tell me, tell me why, tell me why for, what was great about building in Vegas and what took you to Nashville? All right. So... I'm, I'm, I love Las Vegas. There's nothing wrong with starting a business there. The ecosystem actually, so the day before we flew out here to, to finally out here, we hosted one of our events, Startup Vegas, and we had about 250 people show up. And I'm sitting on stage, like looking at this, this community that helped build and help curate. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm making a mistake here. Like Las Vegas is really doing well. The reason that I chose Nashville over Las Vegas is I'm doing another influencer company and there just isn't a good base of people there. And the, the new company that I'm doing, which we can get into later or not, really requires intent from fans to buy things, which is there's not a ton of a purchase intent in influencer space, but musicians in particular, if you have 10, 15,000 followers, you might be able to sell out a two, 300 person show. At twenty, thirty, forty dollars, you're really driving purchase intent. So I, I needed to be there too with source. I'm just not a huge fan of wow, Los Angeles. Yeah, I understand that this was Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that'll be exciting. I'm excited to dive into that a little bit later uh, and hear what you're doing out in Nashville. I wanted to start by digging into a little bit of your original journey. You know, it looks like from early in your career you started in sales, then finance, and then found your way into marketing and digital advertising. Tell me about that early journey before you were maybe a full-on entrepreneur. What were the skills that you were picking up and acquiring? How did that lay a foundation? And what skills sort of were preparing you to take on bigger and better things? I, I typically don't go that far back in my history, but the, I had a, a scholarship to UC Chicago. And my buddy's dad was like, you should come sell cars over the summer. I think you'd be really good at it. So this guy was an amazing salesman and he took me under his wing and he taught me how to sell and all of a sudden it's the late 90s i'm making like sixty thousand dollars as an 18 year old i'm like i don't need to go to college so i learned how to sell i learned that if people like you they'll listen to you and if people trust you they'll buy from you like that was just the way it was and i also learned that i had a knack for numbers and how uh, to creatively structure deals so i was able at a very young age to go from Selling cars as a 17, 18 year old. So I was running a whole lot by myself by the time I was 19 because I was really good at getting deals fine. And I, have you heard of the your principle? You promote people until they're not good at something. And it, it's, it's, I, I, it's like basically you take somebody who's really good at something 
and you promote them into a management position that has nothing to do with what they're good at. And that was, so I was very getting deals, negotiating deals with banking around closed. And then all of a sudden I'm a 19 year old managing 25, 45, 40 plus year old employees. So that it wasn't the best. So I, I went back into the side and after 9-11, something that changed in car sales was the 0% financing on new cars. So a used car, you can, as a salesman, you can make a lot of money on, but the payment, when it, when the interest went down to 0%, the payment was the same as a new car. So used cars weren't selling as much and there wasn't as much money to be paid. So I got into online affiliate marketing for online casinos and I built a pretty nice business that sold in 2005. And in those five years, I became a very mediocre professional poker player. I spent five years, just like a really hundred hour a week job to maybe make six figures if you're doing it right. And I was surrounded by people who were much better than I was. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I was just going to say, I don't think I can make six figures doing it, but I do. Well, <laughs> and I was surrounded with people that were making half a million a year. It's like doing really well. I just realized I wasn't that good at it. And I connected with a dude through poker and he's like, oh, I have this product. I'm like, oh, you need a Facebook page. And he's like, I don't have time for that. And I knew that I needed to get out of poker and I knew that I needed to find something. So I, I found that during, it was the days of Mob Wars and Farmville. And there were these groups where you could go because you needed more friends to take more turns. And there are these groups where they would just like, they called it auctioning your account and everybody would just add you. There's no charge for it. You were just building accounts. So I built a hundred accounts that maxed out the max friends at 5,000 on Facebook. And so when this guy's like, I have a kid's product, I'm like, you know, who probably like his kid's product is all these moms playing farm. So I made a Facebook page. I invited all of those people. And all of a sudden we had 40,000 followers. And this was when you saw when, when, when a page posted, you would see everyone post. So I have 40,000 quickly turned into a hundred thousand. And I'm like, okay, dude. So where I'm Facebook now, you need to sell on Amazon. I mean, like, I don't have time for that. So I created Amazon account, started selling his product to his fans on Amazon. And all of a sudden I'm making quite a bit of money. He's like, oh, you're making too much money. I'll come work. So I, I went uh, to and it was a good bridge back into the professional world. The, the company was called Silly. We went from zero to a hundred million in sales without spending a dollar on kind of social media. So like I said, I started with that social media plan. And then I built Twitter. We started two, two number one worldwide trending topics without paying Twitter to do that. And I, I found that I just had a knack for that. And in that time, he started doing angel investing. And I was uh, fortunate enough to go to one of the companies that he was going to invest in. I learned how to build a product. So had very great mentorship. I'm, you know, somebody just took me out of their wing and said, okay, you know, here are the methods that we use to build a tech product. And the, the product that we built was in 2012 would be competitive with Cameo today, the big website. But we are way too early just because the tech wasn't there to do something competitive with Cameo. But I went on to open an agency, and this is, is a very early days of clickbait. So you won't believe what happens when you click here. Can't say which celebrities, but imagine celebrities that are household names, bringing them $100,000 a month plus off of Twitter. Because they were, we were, we were doing the content and doing the ads as well. And you, you'd have to, but the problem was you'd have to run like eight or nine ads a day in between all the content and the sites that would pay us per click. They were, they would only put out two articles a month. So the fans were getting sick of clicking the clickbait and then seeing the same article that they clicked yesterday. 
So we, we set out to build a better platform. And so what we built was a platform where anybody could write an article and they'd make somewhere between five and forty dollars, depending on how good the article was. And that would get pushed out to a bunch of influencers on Twitter and Instagram. But the problem was in the ad network space at the time, the only player was Google. So Google was ninety-five percent of our revenue from that side of the client base. And it was the early days of mobile web. So we were on Twitter, we were sending 85, 90% mobile traffic. And the way AdSense works is you put, anybody can put AdSense on a website and they serve you an ad based on, you know, what's host to you. So imagine if you had a leaky sink and you'd get, oh, here's a plumber in your city. You would click that ad, but then they would serve you a desktop page as opposed to the mobile ad. And you're on mobile, so everybody's bouncing. And all of a sudden, Google's like, well, we have a million dollars of your money that we owe you. We're not going to pay you until you prove that this isn't. Oh, no, we have a real problem because we had already paid out the influencers. And that's when we we set out to change the business model. The business eventually evolved into what is today the biggest influencer marketing company in the world. It's called Influential. One of the biggest things in that project that really turned things for us is we did a partnership with IBM. And this was in 2015 when AI wasn't nearly as talked about as it was now. But we used IBM Watson to help brands select influencers. So imagine Disney wanted to do a campaign. We would run an analysis on how uh, people talked about Disney. And then we would look at the influencers that we had in our, in our roster, make sure they reached the demographic that Disney wanted to reach. And then we would help them compose a post that was organic to the way Disney fans talk about Disney. So some of their ads were actually getting more engagement than their normal posts because we we're using AR to help craft the messaging. And as a young startup, having IBM next to your name, that really, I'm sorry, I, I see your lips moving. You're good. You're good. I was just going to ask. So that's way early. Most people waking up to AI. I'm very curious about how you identified an opportunity because I think there's there's learnings in that. And also, at that point, was that a large language model or was that another type of AI technology that, that Watson was using? Because I'm unfamiliar with back then so what the development of Watson was. I'm curious if that was sort of in line with what we have in ChatGPT today and some of the other big large language models or if it was totally just like multivariate analysis and other things led to that. I'm curious kind of what what that looked like. There were not... So I, I guess the way to compare the two, so we're using natural language processing, which is what you would get from a LLM now, but it costs us $15 million to build. What we, what's available now, if you get into down the road, is like just how competitive and how inexpensive it is to do these and to make these applications. And then we also used machine learning to help identify influencers. And we uh, built psychographic profiles based on the words that they use. So there's these things called young archetypes, which are really big in advertising. So building archetypes of the followers. So as a brand, you knew, you know, my, my archetype, I don't even remember what the archetypes were, but like the person that I'm trying to reach is the Joker. Okay. So here's an influencer who their followers are, you know, the, the Joker archetype or what I, I think Joker was one of them. It was all very different because it was all very manual, ton of API calls back to Watson, not nearly as easy to do. But the way that we identified it was we reached out to Hawk and they said, Hey, we're trying to get people to use Watson. 
this seems like a really interesting use case. And I think that probably one of the things that we did best as a company was realizing the opportunity there. So we kind of went all in on Watson and it took us, I don't know, nine months or so to build out the product. And we were able to launch it with Kia at the Super Bowl. And commercial was a hit. It was uh, Christopher Walken and it was the walk-in closet. So he's talking with a sock puppet. It was, it was a really funny viral thing that they helped, that we helped them promote. And the campaign did so well that the CEO of Kia and the president, CEO, chairman of IBM did a podcast about what we did. So it was just like one of those things. Goodness, we saw the opportunity and realized what was in front of us and that we just latched on and ran with it. And then obviously the, the companies evolved a lot, you know, built huge partnerships with like Oracle, Facebook, or Meta, TikTok. Like the, the company's really grown and it's not just like IBM is the only claim to fame, but that was just one of those critical moments that we just latched on and gave it the best that we could. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm telling my history here. Right. I love getting into the history. There's always, there's key lessons in all of this, right? And so, yeah, I love it. At one, you capitalize on the opportunity. There's so much in life that, that is a simple decision to just ignore that, man, would have changed the whole trajectory of your company and where you're at today. And so, you know, there's plenty of luck in life. There's plenty of, you know, spontaneous things that come up, but being ready to then identify those high leverage opportunities and say, Hey, so let's go all in here. This is a huge well, ask. And so, yeah, it's super interesting that, that, that all the way back in 2015, you're kind of starting these building blocks of what is now commonplace in terms of large language models and using AI. And so, yeah, I love that. So then going from there, you're working on Influential. Did you guys sell the company? Did you just want to move on to something else? Tell me about then the transition from there into the next. Uh, so in 2017, I my role changed from COO where I work on product culture, all the things I liked about a startup to president. So we brought in a professional CFO, COO to try to raise a massive round. So I, I went from doing stuff that I really enjoyed to hand holding bankers and drinking with them all the time, which I didn't. I was home maybe one or two days a week. Just it didn't feel like, uh, again, the Peter principle, right? Promote up to you aren't good at something. I guess I've done that twice now in our conversation. So, and I grew up really poor. I never left North America. I'm like, I'm going to Europe. So from 2017 until the pandemic, knowing that influential, I'd be able to eventually divest. I didn't have to focus on acquiring a bunch of money. I was able to just pop around Europe, do consulting projects. And I filled up three quarters of a passport book with the stamps without a single one starting in 2017. So it's very like, lucky as far as life enrichment but not great business topic right pandemic brought me back i got word of it i got word of it in like october of 2019 i knew somebody who was working in the white house and they called me and they said life is going to change a lot you got to come home and so i came home reconnected with my now wife during the pandemic started a couple of businesses there was one was a media cash flow influencer project and the other the technical co-founder of Influential Peter and his wife and started building this micro CRM, which kind of plays to what you work on. So basically scan a QR code, QR lists out all the contacts that you have, and then it pushes through with Salesforce, HubSpot, whatever, 
So that way you don't have to take something business card and go enter it yourself. Awesome. Really simple idea. This was at the peak of the venture capital madness. So we had from one of the big companies, I can't say who, we had two two people who wrote checks for series being beyond. They're like, we like this idea. We're both going to give you a million bucks. So you're going to start with two million. Then we're going to run you through this massive thing and we're going to, you know, raise them a hundred million dollars in like 12 months. Like, okay, cool. So we go out and get a customer, start throwing the product out. Then the market just falls apart. Just like kind of felt like we got the rug pulled up from under us. So we were only able to raise $200,000. The economy, startup economy went down to nothing, but we were able to build a business that got very near cash flow break even. And I am, it's called Let's Roro. I am signing the contract either tomorrow or, or Tuesday to sell it. So, and I'm out by the next thing. That's exciting. So tell us up to current days. Yeah. Tell me about where in that process you decided to write the book on chat GPT. What, what was the interest for that? Obviously, as you, as chat comes along, as everyone's waking up to AI, I can imagine for you, you're like, Hey, I know what's coming. I've seen some of the early stage stuff here that I did with Watson and that we built at influential. I can really see how this is going to impact the future. And so I'm going to, I'm going to get and write the book on chat GPT. Tell me about that project and what motivated it and what you learned from. It's, it's much less than that. It's actually, I wouldn't recommend buying it. So I was riding in the car with my wife, every conversation I've had, because, because I've been AI for so long or on the fringes of AI, as soon as ChatGPT popped, people just started contacting me. What's going on with this? You're, you've been in AI. And I'm like, would it be funny if I could make ChatGPT write a book about ChatGPT? And my wife's like, that'd be hilarious. So I sat down, did some prompts, and it was just like really bad content. And it took me probably, I don't know, seven, eight hours to mess with prompts. And then all of a sudden I can spit it out. So like, imagine this is Wednesday night. I, I thought it up, but four hours on Wednesday, try, Wednesday night, trying to figure it out. Thursday, I try to figure it out more like 9 p.m. on Thursday. I get it. And I get it. I'm like, now I, I can get to write a book from 9 p.m. on Thursday night. To 2 a.m. on Friday morning, I learned how to format, write the book, format the book, and publish it on it. So in, inside of five hours, in, in technology, I find one thing, that, one message that I try to give about the advancements in technology is if you want to do something, the information's there, and you can just do it. So that the gatekeepers and the agencies and the expensive things are worth very little. If you want to know about how to do SEO, Go Google how to do SEO and then use, use Dolly to images, use chat GPT to help you write it, rewrite it because you're not going to pass through the AI filters or go find an AI filter check and just change it enough until it passes. But all of a sudden, as a small business, you can compete with these massive companies with a lot of, with a lot of money just by using these tools. So it kind of democratized starting a business. Almost as much as the internet. So, for instance, when when I searching, I I'm like, how do I do this, or what's going on with that? And when people are doing search, when people are trying to jam keywords into a blog post for search, it's never a natural language. So, convers a conversation like this, if you were trying to promote, you know, what you were doing, you would turn this transcript into a blog post, 
maybe put a link to, I don't know, you put it on, uh, you're on Spotify. So you, you put the Spotify link at the top, maybe an image, a small summary of what we talked about, then down below this bold, every word that we spoke. And now you're going to hit for 50, 100, 200 keywords that nobody's optimizing for because we're talking in natural language. And that'll take you maybe a total of 10 minutes to do if you have somebody, ref- or if you, you have a production company, so it's even easier. But you, you just take the transcript and make a blog post, and all of a sudden you're hitting for all of these things. And it didn't get to that. Your software is probably a couple hundred bucks a month. And all of a sudden you have this keyword rich thing that you have. And before you'd have to have a $10,000, $15,000 a month budget to even try to hit that market. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And that's, that's one of the things that is really interesting in my mind. And in fact, this is a great time to go into it, which is this idea of as AI is sort of making it so much easier to create content, what I, what I'm forecasting or seeing and what I believe will happen, what I'd love to hear your insights is it's going to create this tsunami of information already is right. There's already more and more and more information and disinformation and misinformation, what have you, but the, the amount of content that can be produced at scale and speed is just feeding the internet. It's just becoming this huge balloon. And I still think for some period of time, there is real estate to be won in terms of owning certain search traffic and areas, different things. But we're going to reach a point where it's so much and so easy to automate the process of optimizing across so many different words, metrics, subjects, that it's going to become so noisy that then the only way to find something really reliable is going to be AI. <laughs> so then AI is going to have to solve the problem it created and to filter through all that. And, and then probably it's going to be some human component of how do we wait back in human side, the human side to bring trust, to bring uh, context. And that's going to be a very interesting thing to see evolve. But I'm curious to see you know, what your perspective is on that since you've been plugged into this area. I said to that, so the bigger companies have already been thinking about these problems. And this is just anecdotal. If let's say you had a pizza place and you had 500 friends across the country that would uh, leave a review for you, they would do it great. All of a sudden, you're number one pizza place in your town. Well, the, Google's changed their algorithm now where uh, they'll wait a photo, a review many times over, just a normal review from a different IP address. Because when you take a photograph, it has the uh, latitude longitude built into the photo. So if they know that you were at this location when they did that, and, and I think that companies are starting to look at that human interaction as a, a bigger indicator than the actual quality of the tag. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. I know in our business, that's something that we, we're doing right on where actually you'll start helping customers, which is looking at what areas, what real estate you want to own, and then creating a highly automated funnel of content creation. But for us, you know, we, we're producing one or more blog posts a day, fully human reviewed, edited, et cetera, takes about 10 to 15 minutes. You know, the sourcing of the article, all of the materials, everything that's all fully automated, it's generated, et cetera. And then you just need a human who's an expert on the subject to read it, make sure there's no hallucinations, make sure it works. And then, yeah. no. And so it's a matter of just looking at it, reading it, editing it, approving it, and it goes out. And so that process for us has started to just go from, has allowed our business to just capture so much more attention and help so many more people. We're trying to take it actually all the way to 
being able to find and identify who posted the question and then just reach out to them. So we want to get to where someone posts a question about a subject we're an expert on. We generate a response for them. A human review to make sure it's accurate in terms of the solution. We get the solution back to them and we figure out whatever we can know about that user if they're on an authenticated site where we can figure out what company they work at, for example. And we call the company, ask for the person and say, hey, did you see the, the solution and did it fix it for you? And if not, we're here to help. I mean, the, the level of being able to be proactive and, and get on top of a solution and capture all this real estate, there's going to be a lot of availability and opportunity on that for a while. What happens when everyone figures that out and all of a sudden you have 10 companies calling you because you posted a question on the internet? It work. You know, it's, so all these things have a, a period of opportunity and then it becomes noise. And so that's kind of the... Yeah, and I guess one mistake that I've made throughout my career was seeing that, capturing that opportunity, really riding it, and while I'm riding it, thinking that it's going to last forever and not looking for the next thing, that I'll always have a little lull for a year or two after I have a big hit. One of my, one of my good friends who sold his marketing agency, that's exactly what he said. He said, running a marketing agency, you have to reinvent your company every six months based on all the changes to the algorithms, and I just got tired of doing it. That's why I sold it. He's like, it just, I got fatigued of that. And, you know, it's a bit of a hypersimplification, but that's how I think the whole, in all industries are going. The more tech there is, the faster tech is moving and AI is going to accelerate the advent of more technology, more breakthroughs, et cetera. It becomes a speed game. All the opportunity is in the speed of, of being able to capitalize on those opportunities because technology then levels the playing field. And people look at the good side of that. There is certainly a good side of that. And that, like you said, more people could start a business, more people have opportunity. But it also takes away competitive advantages and things that are durable, old sources of leverage that used to be kind of how people would build wealth. It's like, man, have the opportunity. It immediately comes down to market. Quickly level those things uh, because I can just replace what expertise you had built up. And so it's just not as durable. And I, I agree with you. And I think that I think a lot about how, because I, I, I'm a Gen X, so I've been able to see a lot more technology and just the way because i used to have a rotary phone and i used to have to go put hold an antenna for my dad so he could watch the hockey game from canada because we were in detroit but i had seen technology evolve to what it is today and one thing that's really eroded in that time is the human connection you know even dating is for a while for me was down to whether or not i swipe will play it that way just off of pure vanity and i think that AI they evolve so fast, or this they push this so fast that the genuine, authentic human connection can be the only real indicator that we have. So, like, it might push us back into real life while I'm just still cognitive and I can watch it all, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, I agree with that. I think that there's going to be this big influx of human trust component. The part that's going to be extremely interesting to me is. When AI catches up on generating images, generating voice and doing it in real time such that it looks, let's say you get on a call like this and you don't know that this is just an avatar of me interviewing you, that then becomes really interesting of like, well, now do I trust that you are a human? Is there some sort of speciesism of like, I need to authenticate you're a human and then I'll trust because you can present as a human, but you're just AI, you know, and I think that's going to be a really interesting paradigm to confront. I don't know how fast that comes. I think it exists someday. Maybe that needs 10 years. Maybe that day is 100 years. But but in the meantime, there's certainly going to be a period before that where the human trust factor is huge. And that's why I think among the sources of leverage, media leverage and, and building an audience of trust and a reputation of trust at scale yeah. 
is one of the highest leverage things you can do. It's part of why I created this podcast. I want to help people because that's all I'm going to have someday. All the expertise I have on technology, all the expertise I have on business, AI is going to do all that better than me, maybe in the next 10, 15 years. But, but having the actual trust, that's something that is much more durable, I think, for it. So a cu- couple of points. One thing that's been really cool in my lifetime is seeing how content has changed. Like I'm talking about Golden Men Tennis. My dad could see the hockey game from Canada, even though we were in Detroit. We only had five channels, right? And now I can tune into your podcast. There's an account that I follow that's like in the sneakers that I like that aren't very popular. The music that I like only draws a $10, $10 in Las Vegas. Like that's what the headliner gets for tickets. But we're able to find stuff that we really like and we're not having culture pushed down our throat anymore. And the other thing that I would say is, well, generative AI can generate things. It can't conceive something. It can't come up with this podcast idea that that you had. It it can do all the things after you conceive it, but we're not at the point where it can actually create. And the human mind and the, the creative thing that makes us special, I don't see that. Like people say that's worth three years away from that. I don't believe. I, I do not believe that the machine could be creative enough to think about the way that you thought about your business or you want to position yourself the content that you want to make, and then do sure they can find your guests for you. Sure, it can do scheduling. It can help write questions, help write a script. But it took you to start this. I think we're a long ways away from losing that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there, I tend to be probably slightly more on the, I don't know if I would use the word optimistic, of AI true believer in terms of its ability to eventually fully replicate a human. I don't know the timeline on that. And I do tend to think that that in the meantime, there's massive opportunity. And I also think that if, if we ever do get to that point where it can essentially fully do everything humans can do and better, we're screwed anyway. So at that point, there's like, what am I supposed to do about that? So that's not a future I have to worry about because if we get there, then we're just hoping that the AI God provides for us and that we don't get killed off as a species and there's, we are the subservient species. Like in that distant future, like dystopian or utopian, however you envision it, there's really nothing you can do. So in the meantime, there's this whole period we know is going to exist where we work hand in hand with AI, where we do still conceive of the ideas that have a large amount of control. And I think there's a massive opportunity there. And that part gets me really excited. What are some of the ways that you're seeing AI or that you're excited about using AI? I know it looks like that's a big part of this new business you're doing. I'd love to hear kind of where you're seeing that blend in your strategy of like, here's how we're going to position AI with the human component to go do something really meaningful. All right, so th- there's two parts to this answer. One, it's the new business. And so w- when we started Influential, we would start trending topics with influencers, like younger kids that had girls that really liked. And they would say, hey, if you tweet this hashtag, I'll follow as many people as I can. And all of a sudden, we're doing a billion impressions trending number one worldwide. We were able to productize it and turn it into a mature business. But there was this social credit where... Yes, it's a bad word now. This was before China and all that. But, you know, you would get the follow for doing this thing. And there was this desire for a real connection. And to the point where, so our office was in downtown Las Vegas in a high rise. Beautiful scenery to take a picture. Influencers would come by. They'd take a picture and stay with us here in a putt house. We had office bedrooms and stuff. And the kids would triangulate where they were based on the stratosphere behind the influencer in the picture. And all of a sudden, we'd have two, three, four hundred kids standing outside of our building because they just wanted a part of it. 
And across the street was Pawn Stars, the show. And every morning I'd get up to walk my dog at 7, 7.30, and there'd be a line of people out there just wanting to meet those people. The social networks went from a chronological feed where you know you just saw everything to a programmatic feed where they're feeding your content. And uh, the motivation or the incentive structure for the influencer wasn't so much uh, to create that connection. It was more to hit the algorithm. So if you get a million, you're a TikToker and you get a million views on a video, maybe only a quarter of a million of those come from your followers and the other 700 KTJ come from the algorithm. There's other sites that create more connection like Twitch, YouTube, that sort of thing. Your listeners are way more connected to you, not because you're dancing, but because you're providing quality content. What I'm building, we're calling Persona GPT. So let's say your fans wanted to speak to a virtual version of you. They'd come on the personagpt.com slash sponsor, and they'd be able to initiate a chat. And they would type in like, hey, what do you think about this? And we would use, we'd go through your own podcast, your social media posts. We would create the way that you say things. We use natural language processing with Papa Spencer. And then we'd also pull your voice on your podcast. So the, uh, your fan can come and tell you to ask you a question and an animated version of you would speak back to them the answer in the way that you would say it. And we're really big believer that we can help drive that connection again. So that's where we're at with that. On the other side of that, since I had the advantage of starting a new business after all these large language models and all these AI tools came out, I said, well, how do I, how do I do this in a meaningful and a thoughtful way? And my first hire is going to be an AI automation engineer. So we're going to look at every business process that we have, see what tools are out there or see what we can build and just go AI first for everything. We're not taking jobs away from anybody because we haven't created them, but maybe we'll hire somebody that can do five, 10 times more than somebody that I wouldn't been able to hire five years ago and automate those processes. So like the first thing that I'm doing is building out an interface for my email where it's, so what, what am I talking about at night? Point three. What are the top? All right. Here I'm talking about large Okay. Here's some articles about large language models too. And here's a couple of LinkedIn posts that can be written in the voice of Dan because it knows how I talk. So now, all, now my content's kind of getting generated over here based off the content that I'm making. All right, what, how many meetings a week am I doing? What are the topics of those meetings? Uh, which meetings could be ter- could be better handled over email? How can I cut out meetings and optimize my time? So the goal is to look at every part of the business and see how much of it that we can automate, which I, I'm really excited. I'm excited about both sides, but I think that I'll have the broader impact on the world by releasing the information that I found from trying to automate everything on the business side. Yeah, that's exciting. That's we're in a similar boat, or I'm a little more established. But looking at as we continue to grow and scale the company, but where where can we just automate this stuff? And we have a small team internally now that that's all they're focused on. You know, they started out with projects we gave them for being able to automate this flow of identifying people that have questions about subjects we're experts on, providing solutions, turning that into blog posts on our site, turning it into a uh, concept that we can use for training, being able to post it out automatically to all the socials and to the web, just having it available and capturing real estate and going back and posting it to the person who had the question. Saying, hey, you had this question. Here's an answer that helps you. You know, and now we're building that goodwill of our company. We proactively are going to come out and help solve your problem that, that you posted about. 
So trying to do all of those types of things, and that we still have layers to add on top of that that we're building. We also have tools for- That's really clever, by the way. Yeah. I'm going out and proactively. That's really clever. I haven't heard of anybody doing anything like that. That's, I, I just wanted to say, I'm sorry I cut you off. Certain our business. Let's see where it can drive massive value for us. And then let's turn around and help other businesses do that. Because I do think that as, as a high leverage skill for someone that's just starting out, there's just massive power in being the person you just described. This, you know, they don't even necessarily have to be, I, I, it's ideal if they have enough engineering skills to really do custom programming and mix that and API calls and everything as well. But even someone who's maybe low cost, but just is excellent at learning and using chat GPT and just says, look, I'm going to interface it. What you ask it for advice. How do I do this? Then piece that together, then use declarative tools that are not as technical. You can get a long way with that. And then eventually you do need the ideal blend is that having enough programmatic skills to then, if you need custom code, if you need some sort of interface, if you need any of those other things, be able to tie it and weave it together. But there's so much power. That's what we did. We have one of our staff that is, has programmatic experience, has a degree in information systems and is able to then layer on all the other tools. It's incredible with just that small team, how much value is coming to the company and long-term every business is going to have to have, everyone's going to have to have a way. And so if people want a high leverage skill, AI is the skill it's, you know, yeah. combining it with a better, but yeah, the, the amount of scale you can get out of a business now with things you used to need a person for, need a VA for, need several staff for. So do you remember Uber launched their autonomous semi-trucks and people were like, this is the end of it for the world. I didn't like, I, I would, I would argue that semi-drivers are like kind of the, the backbone of the economy. Yeah. But it, it turned out to not be, that. it turned out to be, you know, j- more white collar jobs, which was super interesting. And then the, that I heard somebody say the other day, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, most of the economy was just agriculture. And as we learned how to automate that, people still got their food and now there's more jobs than the automation of agriculture. So I'm not too scared about that. What I think, I don't think you're, not you, just in general, audience person, you're not going to get replaced by AI. You're going to get replaced by somebody who's using AI if you're not keeping up. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's that's a smart insight. And it's true that, that we can't even fathom. You know, I, like you, I remember when cell phones just weren't a thing, when the internet wasn't a thing. And so when, when you have the perspective of going back to, say, late 90s and telling someone, just describing to someone in normal terms, hey, 25, 30 years from now, you're going to, if you want something, you want to buy something. Look, it, shoes. You want shoes. You're going to take your phone out and you're going to find it on the phone. And then you're going to tell it that you want it. It's going to show up on your door a day later. The amount of questions, say you're hungry. Well, I mean, the first question they're going to ask me, how do you choose, uh, how do you choose it on your phone? There's just, your phone does, your phone is a landline and has numbers on it. How can I hobble it off the wall? Do I call it? Hustling for it? How do they know that it's going to fit? How do I know what it's going to look like? You're just like, oh man, well, let me explain. There's these screens. Oh, information can travel through phone lines. Actually, it's not just your voice. I, uh, there's going to be ordering systems that are still automated. Oh, there's going to be fulfillment centers that have predict what you need and have it within a day's transportation. You can't even fathom the all the interdependent systems 
1995 that we have today is just doomed norm. And it's like even trying to describe it would just be mind blowing and baffling to people at that point. And so that's how I feel with AI is like the, it, what it's going to do is going to be massively impactful. And it's just so hard to really plan for what it's going to do because just like with the internet, the whole paradigm moves so significantly that you kind of have to be there and experience it to see the next opportunity. It's hard to just see how all these pieces will happen. And so people get hyper fixated in fear on this will get disrupted. This job will go away. This job will look different. I won't be able to do this. Yeah, that's all going to happen. But if you just focus on that, you're headed nowhere and you're drowning in fear. When you realize that's going to open 50 other doors you can choose from, it's not nearly as daunting. So I think I tend to be an AI optimist. It sounds like you're on that side of it as well. Absolutely. And one way that I like to describe the way technology is evolving is when I was a kid, I'd go to like Home Depot or the hardware store. There's a big funnel. You put a quarter in and you'd watch it go around the funnel and start off really slow at the top and then speed. So we're, we're down here where it's still like that. We have no idea what's coming back. But if you're paying attention, you're, you're way ahead of the average person or get into trade. Like they're good luck getting a plumber in 20 years. If everybody's working on AI automation, that's one thing I guess like as a hedge. I'm learning how to grow food. I've never done that before. So I, I, if it is the doom and gloom that people say it is, I just don't see a robot. Plant. You know, I've garden that works in the winter, and which I didn't know you could do winter gardens. And like it's thriving. I don't see uh, a robot going out and planting food for everybody. The you know in the spring. So that's kind of my little hedge. Like I'll, I'll be able to take care of. It. Plus, it's super interesting because I've never done it before, but. You know, there, there, there is a certain sort of irony that, that I realized as I got a little more successful and I started to realize that what's the ultimate luxury, you know, and the ultimate luxury full circle or the ultimate sort of privilege, if you will, is the ability to learn the most fundamental basic human skills that we get to see that like, if you get to a, a doomsday event, you're like, if you're the guy who knows, get around without modern transportation and keep yourself warm and be like, those that's superpower. That's the thing that no one could touch in a real doomsday environment. It's like, I have the most basic skills that everyone else forgot or AI replaced or what have you. And so in this great irony, it's if, if there is a world where say AI or robots are doing the majority stuff, we're going to come full circle back to like, we got to just go back to real human relationships, real human skills and really connecting. And those things de-stress you. That's what's also so crazy about it. It's like, for all the glory and everything that comes with tech and comfort and leisure, you end up finding that it stresses you. It doesn't necessarily always feel the best. And you go out and you just farm or you do some gardening or, you know, reconnect with nature, or do some fishing or something. And you're like, man, I feel great. <laughs> it's like, it, it's a little certain. One thing on the generated content side, there, there's a bar that we really like by my house. It's called Basics in Nashville. And their content is just so good. Like their menu is, it, you open it up and you're like, wow, that's a really cool menu. I was talking to the owner the other day and what he does his girlfriend watercolor paint them and then he just enhances it through Photoshop. So it looks weak. So it's to your point of the full circle back. I think people will be seeking out like quality. Oh, a human did this and that that'll like a differentiator. So you might have like, your McDonald's and your Walmarts and 
people will continue to consume those things. And then like people who like us and maybe done a little better, will be able to seek out the quality and the real interaction have, have separate. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch them both. Well, it's an exciting time, exciting space. Make lots of really powerful tactics we talked about here for people to think about on the AI front, on building the business. Um, if people want to connect with you, network with you, they're interested in in your new project, how should they reach out to you, Daniel? Twitter, I guess, XDAL or LinkedIn, D-T-S-T-E-L-E. Yeah, reach out. Happy to connect with anybody. We'll put those in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. If you're ever out in Utah, that's where I'm at. Feel free to come stop by. We can go ski or do something outdoors. And uh, are you in uh, Salt Lake? Yeah, uh, about 40 minutes south of Salt Lake. Yeah. We, this summer, how we ended up in Nashville was we bought an RV at, from Vegas and we drove it up to Idaho and then across the north of the country. And I was like really impressed. I never been to Salt Lake. I was really impressed at like just what a tech city. It felt like driving through. It felt like driving through a Bay Area city. So it looks like you have a lot of great stuff going on up there. Yeah, they call it Silicon Slopes now. It's got, got a nice little tech hub here, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a growing ecosystem. So lots of good entrepreneurship happening in Utah as well. But uh, I've never been in Nashville, so at some point I'll come out. And you'll have to let me know where to, to go and what to see. Oh, I, yeah. Well, we'll we'll, have a, we'll go to Day Six. Yeah, go check out the water. Daniel, thank you so much. I appreciate you, and we'll stay in touch. All right, sounds good. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solved.Cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.